Well, there are some people that are particular. You know those kind of people, right? The kind of people that you have to load the dishwasher a certain way, or that there are certain things in the refrigerator that need to go in certain spots. We, I mean, they particular people, does that make us bad people, that we are particular about some things? It usually means that we have particular reasons why we're looking for things to be done and want them done a certain way. Some of those reasons are terrible. Others are good, valid reasons why we would want things done a certain way. Our God is a particular God. And by particular, I mean he does things in a very particular way, especially regarding the plan of salvation. God is very specific, and God is very particular. And I hope today we will learn all about that. So if you're not in Romans chapter 9, please head over there. If you're visiting with us, thank you so much for visiting with us. We are going through the book of Romans, and we are up to Romans chapter 9. And the last week, we swam through the deep waters of unconditional election and God's glory as the goal of everything that he does, including electing some for salvation and some for judgment. Paul gave us a peek behind the divine curtain to see how God works in salvation. And that's the crux of it, right? Salvation is a work of God. Salvation is, from beginning to end, something that God does because God is sovereign over every aspect of his creation, and that, of course, includes salvation. Maybe to say it another way, it means that God is never surprised. If you're here and you came to faith in Jesus Christ, he wasn't up there going, wow, Mike Rule believed in me. I never saw that coming. Of course he saw that coming. He orchestrated every single thing in my life so that I would come to faith as his elect. This week, we take a look at the idea of of who we are, in fact, as God's people, and who we are not. And we're going to do that from a very different angle. And he starts again by talking about God's first people, the nation of Israel, the Jewish nation, but not only Israel. Let's jump in again in Romans chapter 9. I'm going to give us a running start from uh, verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Recall where we left off. Paul was anticipating arguments against unconditional election, about God being sovereign and and knowing and orchestrating things such as that. Comes back to, of course, God's status as creator. As creator and king, he has sole charge over every single thing in his universe. He has the freedom, as we saw last week, to, like a potter, make people, make things for different purposes. Some for good, common purposes, some for other purposes. God's glory is displayed in everything that he does. Picking up in verse 24 then, ESV sort of mangles the Greek here. They make it a little clunky. CSB is a little smoother, so I'll read it in CSB starting in verse 23. 
And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared, hand, prepared beforehand for glory on us, the ones he also called, not from, only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? And Paul makes it clear that God calls people not only from Israel, but also from the Gentiles. And if you recall or you're not familiar with the Jewish worldview at this time, there were two buckets of people in all of humanity at that time. There was the Jewish nation of Israel, and then there was everybody else. Anybody who was not Jewish. And everybody who was not Jewish was called a Gentile. And so Paul makes the radical statement that God did not only call his people from the nation of Israel, but he also called them from Gentiles, meaning from everyone else in the world. It's perhaps the biggest error in Judaism that they thought God's children only came from Israel. That they thought that the whole plan of salvation was limited to themselves. But the reality is from the beginning when God called the pagan Abraham to himself and was going to establish the nation of Israel through him, he said, all of the nations of the world will be blessed through you. The gospel has always been global. Our word for Gentiles here is ethne, which is where we get our English word ethnic, meaning different ethnicities. And it's always been the plan of God that salvation would include ethnicities from all over the world. Again, this is one of those things that Israel should have known, but they refused to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, and thus they continued to make it all about themselves. Even though God made it very clear way back in the book of Hosea that, they would, that he would call a people that was not his own. And if we jump over to the book of Hosea, we can see Hosea chapter 2, verse 21, where Paul cites. He says, And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, and the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say, not my people, or I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Slight differences there between the Hebrew and the Greek New Testament that Paul was using in his own translation, but in context, it's clear. It's talking about in Hosea, in the context of Hosea, he was talking about Israel who would be judged for their rejection of him, for their sin, for their idolatry. And it would be judged so severely that 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel would be gone and lost forever. Northern Israel would be gone. But he would still call a people from the land of Judah. Once he rejected them, but he would still then call. Once the people he called not my people in his judgment will be called his people once again. And so Paul says, guess what? That's also fulfilled in the calling of the Gentiles. A people who were apart from God, who had no hope, no law, no temple, no sacrifices, nothing, no knowledge of God, but I'm going to call some of my people from those Gentiles who were not my people. So Paul says that this text in Hosea is fulfilled by Jesus calling his people from the Gentiles. And that is really, really good for 99% of us sitting here today who are not Jewish but here's the first point. Salvation is not restricted by ethnic background. Salvation is not restricted by ethnic background. God calls people to salvation from any and every ethnicity on this glorious planet. 
Salvation was never meant to be restricted to just Israel. If we fast forward to the end of the story, when Jesus returns in the book of Revelation, we see a scene of worship around the throne in Revelation 7, starting in verse 9. John says, And after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's where we're headed, people. That's what heaven is going to look like. Heaven is going to be a multi-ethnic event. And there is much debate in these days about diversity in the church. And we need to be mindful not to make the same error as Israel did. I think it's natural that we start to think that salvation or the church is about us. Or salvation is about people that look like us. We have to remember that salvation is not restricted to white Americans. Nor should we force the issue of ethnic diversity when it simply doesn't exist in our context. We need to make sure that we don't fall off the road into the ditch of critical race theory or the social gospel. God did not send his son to die on the cross merely for peace between ethnicities. He sent his son to prove that salvation is not restricted by ethnicities. He calls people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation to himself, and we dare not elevate one ethnicity above any other or look down on anyone for the color of their skin or their background or the language that they speak. Let's be clear. Any form of ethnic prejudice is 100% sinful. And you'll note that I did not use the words racial injustice there. Because I believe there's one race, and it's been said before by other people. There's one race. There's human beings made in the image of God. There are many different ethnicities, but we are all human beings made in the image of God. So we need to keep that in mind. We cannot raise any other issues above the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And there are many voices crying out today. Just go on Twitter, you'll find them saying that racial injustice is the big thing in the church, or whatever it is in the church, we have to address this. Those are voices that might be raising that issue of racial injustice above the gospel, and that is idolatry, and we we cannot do that. There's also much talk these days about Christian nationalism. The problem is when there's much talk about something, not many people know what it means. The problem with uh, terms like Christian nationalism is that nobody can agree on what exactly Christian nationalism means. One side of it says that Christian nationalism is that Christianity is about America. We have political candidates ripped and jacked with muscles, wrapped in the American flag and an AR-15 in one hand and a Bible in the other. That's not Christian nationalism. And we, we definitely do not need to be promoting that. I believe Christian nationalism is defined in the Bible by the Great Commission. Go into every nation and preach the gospel. Christian nationalism is the Great Commission. You go into a nation, you preach the gospel, individuals become Christians. Guess what? If enough individuals become Christians in that nation, what do you have? A Christian nation. That's our goal, people. But we need not mangle this together with politics or other things. We will soon devolve into the dumpster fire of a presidential election. It's coming for us all. 
We need to keep these issues firmly rooted in a biblical worldview. Christianity is not restricted to America, just like Christianity is not designed to merely be about Israel. Christianity is for the world. But yes, our salvation started with a God creating the nation of Israel. And we learned, however, that not all of Israel was actually Israel. Just because you were born and you have a birth certificate that says you belong to Abraham somehow, that doesn't mean you were a legit believer. Paul told us that last week. It doesn't come from the family line. It comes from the promise. It comes from faith. It comes from God. But going back to Israel, the vast majority of Israel were not faithful to God. But there was a small part of Israel that was faithful, a small subsection of Israel that were legit believers, or to use the biblical term here, there is a remnant that would actually believe and be faithful. Look at verse 27 back in our text in Romans 9. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. If we pause there, Paul calls another witness to the stand. First he called Hosea, now he's calling Isaiah. Not once, but twice. And the first citation is from Isaiah chapter 10. And if we read that in context, Isaiah chapter 10, starting in verse 20, He says, in that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, that remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. In context, again, we're dealing with prophets. We have a near fulfillment. We have a contextual fulfillment. And then we might have a a larger fulfillment, right? In fulfillment, in Isaiah, in context, he was talking, of course, about the judgment of Israel, who had just been judged by God for their rejection of him. Assyria came in, kicked in their front door, burned it to the ground, exiled everybody. God says, I still will be faithful to my promise. I still will call a faithful remnant, a small group from those people. It still will happen. There is a small remnant that will be called. And we see it here fulfilled again. Paul talking about this. That is fulfilled in all of us who believe by faith in Jesus the Messiah, the small remnant. Even though God promised Abraham that his descendants would be as many as the sand on the seashore. Where the stars in the sky, he says, not all of those stars and not all of those grains of sand are actually going to be saved. There will be a small remnant that will come. Judgment is coming for the rest. But for some, they will believe and be saved. And God is faithful to save some. Paul goes on to quote again Isaiah, this time all the way back in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 9. He says, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors... We should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. If you're due to your Bibles or you don't remember what Sodom and Gomorrah were, they were two cities most likely in the southeast of early Palestine whom God ordained for them to be destroyed because of their grave sinfulness. And quite especially was the sin of homosexuality. 
which was proven in graphic detail in Genesis chapter 19. And we need not skip over that fact too quickly, right? God destroyed two whole cities because of the abomination of homosexual sin. And even today, we have this word taken from Sodom in our language to describe it. It is worth saying that it is the crystal clear, continuous message of Scripture from beginning to end that homosexuality is a complete and utter sin. And it's worthy of severe judgment. But before we camp on that too much, let's also be reminded that the gospel forgives all sin. That the gospel has mercy that cleanses all sin. God rained down fire on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and completely destroyed them and any, everyone in it. The point is that God was being gracious to Israel because Sodom and Gomorrah were completely destroyed. And Paul makes the point from Isaiah saying, well, it could have been worse. We could have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. Our whole, we could have been completely destroyed. But no, God was faithful. God left us a remnant. God left us a few survivors in Israel. Even though he judged Israel severely for their rejection of him, even though they were in exile, he still left a few survivors in his faithfulness. He left a remnant. God will not save all of Israel, and God will not save all of humanity. That is the error of universalism. Right? The idea that God will just somehow save everybody. The idea that there are many paths to God. And if we remember from our introduction, there are not many paths to God. God is a particular God. There's one path that he says. And the Bible is completely clear from cover to cover that some will be saved, not all. Only a remnant will be saved. And our word remnant, of course, means a small surviving group of a whole population. And so while salvation is not restricted by ethnic background, second point here is this. Salvation is restricted to a remnant. Salvation is restricted to a remnant. Paul has once again already given us an airtight argument from the Old Testament. Not all of Israel was saved. Right? God chose to save some, a remnant. God chooses to save a remnant still today. Universalism is a tragic heresy where it is believed that somehow everyone will be saved in the end. It is completely false. Stealing from a future sermon in Romans chapter 11, he talks about uh, the remnant, once again, Romans 11, 5 through 6. Remind me when we get there in a couple years that it's time to. Romans 11, chapter, uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 5. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. He says, yeah, there's a remnant. And God chose that remnant in grace. Right? Nothing that we have done with ourselves or ourselves. It is only God's grace. Last week we talked about unconditional election. That God's elect, his electing of some to salvation is unconditional. It's not based on anything we do. It's not conditional election. It's not whether he thinks we might believe. It is God in his grace. We can't bring anything to the party because we're completely sinful. God has to do the electing. God has to do the work. This week, we've come upon the Reformed doctrine of limited atonement, or another way we call it, particular redemption. The doctrine that the blood of Jesus is for the elect, in other words, the remnant. And there is 
absolute, another way to look at it, is that the blood of Jesus will save, will be the satisfaction for wrath, will bring forgiveness for sins positively, definitely, for every single one of God's elect. Every single one of that remnant, God's blood applies, and it is completely definite that they will be saved. And Jesus died to, to pay that price on the cross, of course, to provide the means of salvation for his remnant, which is received by faith. He didn't die to make you savable. He died to save you with his blood. He died for his elect, the remnant that Paul's telling us about. How can this help us today? I mean, what is the application for us? Doctrine has to be in our lives in order for it to be helpful. And I think maybe the first Stop is assurance. We spent three weeks in a little mini-series, right? Paul is once again harping on assurance, our assurance of salvation. If you are a Christian, meaning if you realize that you're a sinner separated from God and that you are under his wrath, and you've come to see by the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is that sacrifice, that he is the Savior, and if you have placed your full faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin, right, you're part of the elect, you're part of the remnant, and more to the point, your sins absolutely, definitely have been paid for. They are atoned. God's wrath has been satisfied. So that's big assurance for us, right? Isn't it? When, when we think, man, I wonder if God forgives that. I wonder if he would even forgive this. I wonder if all that time maybe before him, where I was raging in rebellion against him, would he forgive it? This, this doctrine of particular redemption, definite atonement, limited atonement, whatever you want to call it, should be a warm blanket that says definitely, absolutely, for his children, he has absolutely forgiven our sin. And a second maybe application for those who are not part of the remnant as evidenced by their continual rejection of Christ as their only hope of salvation, judgment is coming. We didn't really spend too much time on this last week, but there is an aspect of judgment, church, that is good. We want evil to be punished. We, we want child molesters and rapists and other horrific crimes and sins. We, we want those, those people to be punished. We have to acknowledge that Yes, as hard as it is with judgment, we have to acknowledge that there is justice, that, that God has a sense of justice, and we share that in our hearts as his creatures. We have to acknowledge that judgment is partially a good thing because we want evil to be judged. We want those who hurt others, to those that are inflicting pain or suffering on innocent victims to face the judgment of God. The murderers, the rapists, all of we could go on, right? And Christian, Remember, more encouragement, more application here. Evil's getting away with nothing. When we see the horrific things that are happening all around us, when we experience injustice in our own lives, we've got to remember, evil's not getting away with anything. That God will judge sin. Maybe even some of those people will turn to Christ in faith and have even horrific sins covered by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. The other half of the remnant being chosen for salvation is that there are those others who are chosen for judgment, and sometimes that's a good thing for us. Of course, what we don't like, what is hard for us, when we, when we think about that is we think about our friends, our family, our loved ones who might face judgment for rejecting Jesus. 
That's difficult for us. That's when judgment isn't such a warm blanket for us because we, we don't want them to be judged. We want them to come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's hard for us to think about that. That someday if they do not bow the knee and submit to Christ. And what are we to say about that? And Paul asks that same question once again. It comes down to clarifying how anyone can be saved. Look at Romans 9, and chapter, uh, verse 30. He says, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. How are we saved? Same answer Paul has been saying all along in Romans. Faith. Sola fide, we are saved by faith alone, meaning there's nothing else we can bring ourselves that has any merit or contribution to our salvation whatsoever. We bring faith. Or how do we then even become righteous? How are we justified? Same answer, faith. We are declared innocent through faith. How do we, as he says, attain righteousness, faith. He makes this clear by comparing and contrasting the Gentiles and the Jews. Paul says, so what about all this? The Gentiles have been declared righteous? Like, again, Paul the master at anticipating arguments and, you know, people opposing the view that he's espousing. You can hear him. You can kind of feel the offense in this. The Gentiles have been declared righteous. They've attained righteous and Israel has not. He's using Israel symbolically to mean this. Israel as the ones who then tried to make the basis of their justification what? Obedience to the law. They tried to check the boxes. They tried to say, look at me. God is happy with me because of I'm a part of Israel. God's happy with me because my driver's license has a Jewish last name. God's happy with me because I checked all the boxes in obeying the law. You can feel the offense coming back at Paul. So wait, Paul, you're saying the Gentiles, because there was a lot of animosity between Jews and Gentiles, there still is. The Gentiles, they didn't have the law. They don't care about the law. They are righteous and we are not, Paul? That's what you're saying, Paul? We are Israel. And Paul says, that's exactly what I'm saying. And here's why. The Gentiles pursued righteousness differently than you did. The Gentiles pursued righteousness the way that God had particularly decreed it to be attained, which is by faith. You tried to do it through obedience. Guys, Israel got tripped up along the way by something. Well, actually by someone, the Messiah, Jesus You see, God placed the Messiah in human history as the way for us to be righteous. How? Well, we're not righteous. As Paul had already said, there's no one righteous, not even one. And so we needed this alien righteousness. We needed this outside righteousness for us to be righteous, which we can only attain through faith. If we're not righteous and we're all totally depraved, there's nothing that we can do for ourselves. That's why Christ has to come in who is righteous and we receive it through faith. Most of Israel missed this. They tripped over this truth. 
It caused them to stumble. When you stumble, you fall down. You're not walking anymore. They were not walking towards righteousness anymore because they tripped over the Messiah, over Jesus. And Paul goes back one more time to Isaiah to prove that point. Isaiah 28, in verse 16, he says this, Therefore says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. And whoever believes will not be in haste. Did you catch that? The cornerstone, the stone upon which the whole structure's weight lays upon, this is Jesus. The cornerstone upon which the whole plan of redemption weighs down upon. The whole plan of redemption is dependent on Jesus. And he says, whoever believes in him will not be put to haste or not be put to shame. And most of Israel missed missed it. And it was their downfall. They fell. They tripped over the truth of the Messiah. They couldn't get it. They refused to see that Jesus was the way way to righteousness. Instead, they tried to substitute their own righteousness and their own efforts. And so third point is this. Salvation can never come through our own efforts. Salvation can never come through our own efforts. It is human nature to try and justify ourselves, isn't it? What do I have to do to be saved? Obey laws 1 through 623? Got it. I'm on it. Look at me. I'm obeying the law. Make no mistake, church. Paul's not throwing out the law here. We're still called to obey God's law, meaning his moral law, by which everyone will be judged, the standard But our obedience can never be, our our blessing of righteousness, rather, can never be through obedience. It has to be through faith. Israel was not wrong to obey the law, but it's how they did it. Dr. Schreiner put it this way, Israel wasn't misguided to pursue the law. What is problematic, rather, is the way in which they pursued the law from works so as to establish their own righteousness. God is the one who needed reconciliation, right? He was the offended party, right? We were the ones who sinned against him, who rejected his authority. Therefore, guess what? God's the only one that can specify the particular way in which redemption, righteousness, justification, all of that will happen. The error of Israel was they looked at that, they didn't like the plan, and they substituted their own righteousness. They said, no, 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 this is how we are going to be reconciled despite God's plan. Israel went around Jesus and stubbornly tried to maintain their own righteousness by obedience to the law, which is impossible. And so again, in application maybe, what about us? What is our go-to righteousness substitute? What is, what is the, the means or the things that we use to self-justify? Why is God happy with you? Is it because of what you think you're doing for him? Is it because of who your family is? Is it because that maybe you're not like all those other evil people in the world? What are the ways in which we tend to self-justify? All right, but, but hold on here, Dr. Pastor Mike. Do we have any responsibility at all? Yes, we absolutely have responsibility in this. This is the tension of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. And Jesus said himself in John chapter 6, And they said to him, what must we we do? You hear that? Even even the people who heard Jesus preach is like, okay, what do we got to do? What box do we have to check? Well, how do I get in on this? 
They said, what, mo- what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in whom he has sent. Our responsibility is faith. Our responsibility is belief. You see, it's, it's, so, it's so revealing in this comment. Like, okay, what do we got to do, Jesus? Just tell us the list of things we got to do. We want to do the work of God. I was having a conversation the other night with someone that I had met, and he was saying that he does a couple good deeds a day to, to kind of outweigh some of the bad things that he does. And, you know, you know, old man upstairs should be happy about that. And I kind of let a couple seconds go by, and he was ready for me to respond, and I just said, it doesn't work like that, dude. It doesn't work like that. We, we can't outweigh anything with our good deeds. And it's, it's in our DNA. We all feel like that. If I do these, I'm at church today. I took a shower. I dressed up. I went here. God's happy with me. No, God's happy with you because you're his elect in Christ Jesus. That's why God's happy with you. But as an elect child of God in Christ Jesus, yes, take a shower, put on clothes, come to church and worship with everybody else. But the grounds of that coming to church cannot be our justification. We, our role, our responsibility is to believe and keep on believing and keep living a life that matches our testimony. We live a life that matches our identity. We seek to, we strive to live out who we are. And we are responsible for that. One man famously said, two things are certain. God is sovereign and man is responsible. We are responsible for how we live our lives and we will be responsible for whether or not we believe Jesus Christ or rejected Jesus Christ. And that is ours. God is sovereign over his plan of redemption and it is a very particular plan of redemption. And for us, our response is faith. We trust fully in Jesus Christ for our salvation and Paul reminds us that those who trust in him will never be put to shame. And so the big idea this morning, salvation comes through faith in the particular plan of God. Salvation comes through faith in the particular plan of God. Salvation doesn't come by having faith in your version of God's plan. Salvation doesn't come through your arrangement that you think you have with God. God has a very particular plan, and we respond with faith. We don't get to make up our own plan. You don't have an arrangement with God. Whatever that you might think that is, you don't. He's given us the arrangement right here. We respond to it. But if you go on the interwebs, you will find many human creatures who are self-deceived kings of their own little sub-kingdoms who disagree with God's plan and decide to create their own path to salvation, their own path of righteousness and meaning meaning there are many paths to God and I'll just make my own path. And that's unfortunately, like I said to my friend, that's not how that works. It doesn't work like that. God's plan includes that salvation is not restricted by any ethnic background. Anyone from any tribe, tongue, and nation who calls on the name of Jesus Christ will be saved. However, it is God's plan that salvation is restricted to a remnant God does elect some to salvation and some to judgment. Some will be judged. Not all will be saved. Universalism is a lie. And God's plan includes that salvation can never come through our own efforts or our own ideas. You and God, again, don't have that special arrangement 
of how God is going to let you into his kingdom and forgive your sins. God made the plan, and it's a very particular plan, and ours is to believe in it. Salvation is not our plan. It's the plan of a good and gracious heavenly father who loves his children so much that he made a way for us to be reconciled to him through his son, Jesus Christ. He sent Christ to the cross where Jesus willingly took the full wrath of God on the cross for our sin in our place. And he was gloriously and victoriously resurrected to life, thus paving the way, making it possible for his remnant then to also have new life. That's the particular plan of salvation. Ours is to believe it, not reinvent it. Not to agree with the parts we like and throw out the other parts, not to work for it. And if you're here today and you have not obeyed this plan or believed an alternative custom creation version of the plan, turn and believe in this one and only particular plan of salvation. But for us, church, the remnants, what a merciful God we serve, that he would do this for us. Let's pray that we can walk in that, the light of the assurance that our sins are actually definitely forgiven by the blood of Jesus shed for his remnant, the elect. And let's live lives that make that truth known wherever we can. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your grace. We thank you for this plan. Lord, in a world where, where truth has lost all meaning, where where objective things have become subjective. Lord, many churches have capitulated to that. Many churches have given in and and thrown away your particular plan of salvation for whatever version is in the news or whatever version their hearts feel. And that is not what you say in your word. So first of all, Lord, help us here at Highlands Bible Church to stand firm on what your word actually says and to trust in it and not compromise that message. But Lord, I pray for those here today that may not have bowed the knee and and understood your plan or maybe trying to make their own plan. I pray that you would bring that sweetness of conviction from your spirit and that you would open their hearts, that you would grant them repentance and faith and that they would trust you and be saved. And Lord, for us who have trusted in you, who do believe that your plan is particular and specific, Lord, would you help us to have trust and faith Would you help us to proclaim this particular plan of redemption in a way that is clear? And may your Holy Spirit bring many people to yourself from this confused world. And we would ask all of this for your glory and in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen.